afternoon, and uh, thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, you're here for a discussion about Afghanistan and Pakistan. Surprisingly, this is probably one of the few discussions on the Hill today that does not involve a $700 billion bailout package. So if you came looking for that, I guess you're in the wrong place. Uh, before we get started with the program, let me just make a couple quick announcements. First of all, I wanted to bring to your attention uh, Cato Today. Cato Today is a daily email newsletter that we send out each morning. Uh, intended to give Capitol Hill staffers and other interested people uh, a quick rundown of what's going on at the Cato Institute. That includes highlights from our blog, uh, new papers that we're releasing, and events like today's event. So if you're not already subscribed and you're interested in uh, doing so, you can, uh, you can go to cato.org, www.cato.org, and sign up for that email newsletter. Um, also at cato.org is, is virtually every pub paper that we publish, op-ed that we write, uh, it's a great resource when you're learning about new issues. Uh, it's also got, uh, you can see we're recording today's event. We also have archive footage of all Cato events available there. So if you uh, happen to miss a part of today's presentation or think it's so great you want a colleague to check it out, you can just point him or her to Cato.org. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out very briefly is the Cato Handbook on Policy. This is a, uh, a publication that we issue every few years intended to give Capitol Hill staffers and other policymakers uh, just a solid overview of virtually every issue that you'll be dealing with here on Capitol Hill. That ranges from trade, Social Security, foreign policy, civil liberties, basically every issue under the sun. It's a great primer on policy issues and a great resource to keep on your desk if you're uh, working here on Capitol Hill. With that, I'll go ahead and introduce our first speaker for today. Uh, Malou Innocent is a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Her primary research areas are the Middle East and Persian Gulf, and she studies U.S. foreign policy uh, toward Pakistan and, Pakistan and China in specific. Uh, to that end, she actually just completed a several-week trip to uh, Pakistan, where she learned on the ground about some of the, the issues that that the country is facing in, in uh, trying to stabilize the region. And uh, obviously she'll, she'll be talking about that at length. Um, Malou earned uh, dual bachelor's of arts degrees at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. And she also holds a master's of arts uh, degree from the University of Chicago in international relations. With that, I'll turn things over to Malou. Thank you, Brandon. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you here this afternoon. Uh, the question on the table is, does America have a lot to lose from a destabilized nuclear in Pakistan? Or in slightly different words, does Pakistan's precarious domestic situation directly impact U.S. interests in the region? I think the answer is axiomatically yes. If Pakistan should fall, the consequences for the region and for the United States will be dire. Like many foreigners who have been to Pakistan, I stayed at the Islamabad Marriott Hotel attacked two weeks ago by militants. The attack was personally chilling, but what I want to stress to you today is that the attack was a signal of something that's been gathering in Pakistan for some while, which is an Islamic insurgency led by loose networks of suicide bombers who are striking targets within Pakistan at an unprecedented rate. What I want to do today is to give you my take on what two main issues are of central concern to U.S. policymakers today. The first is the strength of the spreading Islamic insurgency along the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The second is the sometimes incompatible strategic objectives of the major political actors within the region, mainly Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, the United States, and sometimes even China. 
Let me start by explaining why the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan remains so lawless. The border between Pakistan and Afghanistan hasn't been governed by a state for hundreds of years. During the imperial period, the government of British India and the government of Afghanistan actually negotiated the delineation of Afghanistan as a border with which to protect British India from Russian armies. But the zealously independent and battle-tested Pashtun tribes that inhabit this region were able to repeatedly repulse Britain's colonial armies. The border that would come to define modern-day or divide modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan, known as the Duran Line, uh, was actually ignored by many of the native tribes inhabiting the region and would later on be ignored by the various Afghan leaders subsequently. Given their many defeats at the hands of these native tribes, the British decided to institute a policy known as masterly inactivity, or essentially non-interference in the internal affairs of the Pashtun tribes. This policy was essentially inherited by the independent government of Pakistan in 1947 and has been followed more or less without alteration for more or less for, uh, without alteration since then. So first of all, you have this long stretch of territory along the Afghan border that is essentially outside of uh, Pakistani constitution. These are the areas known as the federally administered tribal areas. And according to Pakistan expert Steve Call, these regions actually have a status in the Pakistani constitution that's analogous to, say, Indian reservations in the American constitution. They're a separate territory in a sovereign sense. Each tribe is collectively responsible for maintaining the law and order in their given area, and the laws and the political systems that prevail in this part of Pakistan are much different than those that prevail in other parts of Pakistan. A two-part system existed in Fatah uh, prior to the Afghan War of the 1980s. This two-part system consisted of tribes native to the region and the independent government of Pakistan. But after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, a third part emerged, that of militant jihadist organizations, or the Mujahideen. These militants were highly organized, extremely well-funded, and were battle-hardened. They were also not bound by traditional tribal laws or customs and were able to outmaneuver and outfund the traditional tribal leaders. During the 1990s, Pakistan's National Intelligence Agency, Inter-Services Directorate Intelligence, or ISI, used these areas as a training ground for foot soldiers waging jihad against India and Kashmir and against the Tajik-dominated Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. By 2002, al-Qaeda and the Taliban, attempting to escape aerial bombardment from the U.S.-led NATO invasion of Afghanistan, poured over the border into Fatah and were able to find sanctuary in Pakistan. Now, who are these insurgents that inhabit this region of, of, of the region today? One is the original Afghan Taliban, which at one time ruled most of Afghanistan. According to NATO Chief of Staff for Southern Afghanistan, the thinking piece of the Taliban, of the original Afghan Taliban, are focused on fighting foreign military forces in Afghanistan and are based in Quetta, the provincial capital of Balochistan. Pakistan's ISI is also believed to be continuing to assist the Afghan Taliban in order to use the group as a proxy organization against Hamid Karzai's regime in Afghanistan, which Pakistan accuses of being pro-India. A second group operating in Fatah is the Pakistani Taliban, or Tariqi Taliban Pakistan. And their jihad is focused almost exclusively on Pakistan itself. They fight law enforcement officials, the ISI, army headquarters, and their leader, Batula Massoud, is actually believed to be behind uh, the assassination, last December's assassination, of uh, Pakistani politician Benazir Bhutto. A third group that operates in this region is, of course, al-Qaeda, uh, led by Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And according to U.S. intelligence, they're believed to be operating on the Pakistan side of the Pakistan-Afghan border. 
Aside from these three distinct yet interconnected groups are also foreign elements. These are neither Afghan or Pakistani. They are Uzbeks, Tajiks, Kyrgyz. And on top of these groups, you still have even more groups, more militant groups. These are those that foment sectarian violence within the region, and they're mainly Sunni groups. These are radical Sunnis determined to eliminate Shiism from Pakistan. And in addition to Fatah, you also have the two westernmost portions of Pakistan that um, that are also uh, experiencing spillover effects from the regional militancy. This is Northwest Frontier Province in Balochistan, where the same tribally organized Pashtuns are predominant. In fact, uh, in many many settled areas of Northwest Frontier Province, which again is a formal province of Pakistan, in many of these settled areas, relentless Taliban incursions have already led to the complete collapse of tribal and civilian administration. According to the Long War Journal and senior U.S. intelligence officials, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and allied terrorist groups have 157 training camps in the tribal areas alone and more than 400 logistical support locations in the tribal areas and in northwest frontier province. So these are the dynamics that are shaping the region and shaping the militancy behind what we're seeing today in the news. And Pakistan, it's viewed as a critical ally in the global war against terrorism, but the spread of anti-American and pro-Islamist sentiment is empowering these jihadist groups that are filling voids left by ineffective state institutions. Now what I'd like to do is sort of move away from this on-the-ground assessment of the militancy and offer an explanation of the big-picture strategic dynamics involved in this militancy and what exactly is undermining uh, America's uh, mission in Afghanistan. By big picture, I mean the relations involving Pakistan, India, uh, Afghanistan, uh, United States, and sometimes even China. Now, not only can a shift in U.S. policy toward one country have unintended consequences across the region, but a shift in U.S. policy toward one country could affect seemingly unrelated policies towards other countries. So first, if we want to understand this better today, uh, we can look at the United States and their reliance, heavy reliance on Pakistan. The United States relies heavily on Pakistan for transporting fuels and supplies into landlocked Afghanistan. As we already know, America's relationship with Afghanistan's neighbors, namely Iran and Russia, aren't going all that well. So the United States uh, NATO mission has to rely on transit routes that course through Pakistan uh, to supply its forces next door. In fact, an estimated 70% of NATO supplies move through Pakistan's Khyber Agency alone. And what they do is they actually arrive in Pakistan's port city of Karachi. They move north up to Peshawar. They cross the border into Afghanistan and arrive in Kabul. The rest of the supplies uh, pass through the Shaman border, uh, crossing the crossing point in Balochistan. Now, one problem that this present arrangement is running into, aside from the militant attacks and ambushes, is the incompatible strategic objectives of Washington and Islamabad. For Pakistani defense planners, the existential threat from India, its longtime rival India, shapes most of its strategic considerations. And it doesn't help that many Pakistanis feel very threatened by India's growing influence within, within Afghanistan. India is the fifth largest donor of aid to, to Afghanistan. Afghan President Hamid Karzai has introduced a more pro-India policy stance within the Afghan government. India has invested heavily in nation-building projects and reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghan President Hamid Karzai has also sent Afghan officers to train in India. And soon, according to local news reports, the Indian Army will be training Afghan troops in Afghanistan in counterinsurgency operations. Now, again, given India and Pakistan's longstanding strategic rivalry, and Pakistan being sandwiched in between India and a pro-India-leaning government in uh, Kabul, 
Many Pakistani defense planners are feeling encircled by hostile forces, and we can see a corresponding deterioration of the situation in Afghanistan as a result. According to U.S. intelligence officials, ISI provided support to pro-Taliban insurgents responsible for the July 7th bombing of the Indian embassy in Kabul. And in the minds of many high-level Pakistani officials with whom I spoke, they accuse Indian intelligence of actually using Indian consulates in Afghanistan to funnel, secretly funnel weapons into a Balochistan for the separatist insurgency there. Now, and luckily for the United States, by overlooking the strategic dynamics at play, its war on terror ally may inadvertently jeopardize the operations in Afghanistan. A similar strategic oversight actually occurred during the 1990s, when U.S. policymakers neglected Pakistan's cultural affinity with the Pashtun-dominated uh, Taliban and Islamabad's incentive to use the group as a terrorist proxy organization. It's important to keep in mind that Afghanistan has always been part of Pakistan's regional struggle with India. Nearing the end of the anti-Soviet jihad of the 1980s, Islamabad saw its opportunity to ensure that after the Soviets withdrew, that an Islamic government aligned with Pakistan would come to power in, in Kabul rather than a secular pro-Indian government aligned with India. To hawks in Pakistan's ISI, Afghanistan was intended to provide its forces with strategic depth in the event of another full-scale war with India. Now, this overall interconnected nature of the region is further complicated by Pakistan and Afghanistan's history of rocky relations that began at Pakistan's founding. In fact, Afghanistan cast the only dissenting vote when Pakistan sought admission into the United Nations. The precursor was a dispute over the tribal territories, the Pashtun tribal territories adjoining both countries. Over the decades, various Afghan leaders have tried to, have wanted to annex Pakistan's Pashtun-dominated tribal areas, specifically Fatah, Northwest Frontier Province, and Balochistan, and create a separate and independent Pashtunistan. In addition, Pakistan's loss of East Pakistan in 1971, which later became the independent country of Bangladesh, still has many leaders in Islamabad fearful of irredentist Afghan leaders stirring up trouble in their backyard. And so thus losing ground in Afghanistan, at least for many Pakistanis, uh, would leave their country more vulnerable in the event of another full-scale war with India. Now, on top of friendly relations between Afghanistan and India and horrible relations between India and Pakistan and terrible relations between Afghanistan and Pakistan, an added element in this overall dynamic is also Pakistan's close ties with China. Pakistan and China have always enjoyed warm relations, especially during the Cold War. In fact, President Nixon actually uh, used Islamabad's close ties with Beijing to open relations with China in 1972. Two weeks ago, Pakistan's chief of army staff, General Ashfaq Kayani, and Chinese defense minister Liang Guangli and said that Pakistan and China would actually continue their strong military, bilateral military ties into the future. Now, in the long term, I think that Pakistan might play the role of regional wild card and actually help expand China's power projection capabilities within the region. In fact, both countries have already signed the Gwadar port deal in, in Balochistan, and this port will have strategic implications for India. The port will be less than 180 nautical miles from the Strait of Hormuz, and at least in theory would allow Pakistani ships to interdict uh, Indian oil tankers. This port also fulfills China's string of pearls littoral strategy, which is Beijing's efforts to increase the number of ports and airfields uh, through the South China Sea, through the Arabian Gulf, through the Malacca Straits, and into the Indian Ocean. If we assume that India and China continue their trajectory of economic growth, we can also assume that both countries will also continue to divert more economic resources toward the expansion of their militaries. 
it's certainly in the minds of U.S. and Indian defense planners to try and thwart China's littoral strategy in the region. So what we have today is the confluence of competing maritime powers, China and India, Pakistan and India's fight over regional hegemony, Afghanistan and Pakistan's acrimonious relations over the lawless border region, and U.S. and NATO troops being killed by militants running wild in nuclear in Pakistan in a region where we can't find them. So what can America do? I have four options or four recommendations for U.S. policymakers. First, on the political front, U.S. policymakers must recognize that America's name in this region is extremely toxic. Pakistanis blame U.S. policies for their deteriorating situation, and in many areas, for many Pakistanis, uh, U.S. influence is actually more threatening than al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And I think that this is one reason why President Bush's embrace of uh, Pervez Musharraf's regime was actually a huge political liability for President Musharraf until recently. Overt support for U.S. involvement in the region is also one reason why newly elected President Asif Ali Zadari is extremely unpopular within Pakistan, and why you see opposition leader Nawaz Sharif has seen his popularity soar because of his opposition to America's involvement next door in Afghanistan. So Washington must step away from the belief that one particular leader can be its linchpin for its policies within the region. Not only that, but over time what you see for the past 61 years of Pakistan's history is that the country's been a topsy-turvy revolving door of military and civilian leaders. And so it's best for policymakers to cultivate relations both with military leaders and with civilian leaders, because civilians may be in power one day and military in power the next. Second, on the strategic situation, rather than repeat past mistakes by misunderstanding the strategic dynamics at play, Washington must engage in vigorous diplomacy with Islamabad, Kabul, and New Delhi. Only with a comprehensive regional strategy and the soothing of Pakistani fears of Indian hegemony can the United States hope to gain Pakistan's assistance on the combating the spreading Islamic insurgency. Third, in the tribal areas specifically, America must exercise as light a footprint as possible. In this respect, while it's, it's basically true that unilateral missile strikes and commando raids can, extinguish, can successfully extinguish high-value targets, what we need to also keep in mind is that the, the collateral damage unleashed from such attacks push more tribes further into the Taliban camp. The goal should be to try and pry Pashtun support away from these militant groups. And the best way to do that is through a concerted political and military campaign that looks similar to the strategy that U.S. forces implemented belatedly in Iraq, Al Ambar province, which actually split Iraqi Sunnis from al-Qaeda in Iraq. Fourth, a less pressing topic, but one that also needs to be discussed, is the fear of militants seizing Pakistan's nuclear weapons. This scenario is possible, yet I think it remains unlikely. But what the United States can do to mitigate against this possibility is by increasing the number of Pakistani officers trained in the International Military Education and Training Program, IMET. These military training programs give foreign officers experience training alongside American military officers at elite American institutions. Not only can such programs help to hone uh, Pakistan's counterterrorism and counterinsurgency skills, but also serves as a confidence-building measure between uh, Islamabad and Washington. Fifth, Washington must also exercise greater oversight on the disbursement of military aid given to Pakistan. As much of it, obviously, as we know now, um, evaporates due to widespread corruption and mismanagement or is used or for more suitable uh, conventional warfare fighting against India, which is, should not be America's objective. Overall, U.S. policy toward Pakistan is extremely complex, and there's no silver bullet strategy to quelling the region. 
But these are the fundamental conditions shaping Pakistan today. And if these conditions are not corrected, unfortunately, the U.S. mission in Afghanistan will fail. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Malou. I should note uh, real quick, there are a number of chairs up here. So if you're stuck standing in the back there, uh, feel free to, to have a seat. We won't call on you or anything. Um, our next speaker for today is uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, who's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute. He's the author of eight uh, books on international affairs, including his latest, Smart Power. Uh, and I should note, if you're interested in, uh, in, in obtaining a copy of, of his book, you can let me know. We do uh, provide them complimentary to, uh, to Capitol Hill staff. Um, Ted, has his, uh, his writings have been published in a number of, of prestigious newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and, and many, many more. He holds a Ph.D. in diplomatic history from the University of Texas. With that, I'll turn things over to Ted. Thanks very much, Brandon. Uh, when I wrote an article for the magazine Chronicles on Afghanistan uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, my working title was America's Other War. And when the media bothered to pay any attention to the war in Afghanistan, which didn't occur all that often, they would often refer to it as America's Forgotten War. Well, that's certainly not the case anymore. Uh, indeed, Afghanistan uh, has become increasingly prominent in terms of America's anti-terror efforts. In July, August, and September, there were more U.S. military fatalities in Afghanistan than in Iraq. And the U.S. military commander in Iraq, Dr. Uh, General David McKernan, uh, stated yesterday that he felt the Afghanistan mission was in very serious jeopardy. That is the latest in a string of warnings by U.S. military officials. And there is ample evidence of that. The Taliban and al-Qaeda have regrouped in recent years, and they are mounting both larger and more frequent attacks and often more lethal attacks. We're now seven years into this war as of this month. Why have things gone wrong? Well, the most basic reason is that we took our eye off the ball in 2002 and 2003. We had the Taliban and al-Qaeda on the ropes, and we certainly had an opportunity, if not to totally defeat those organizations, at least to administer severe and long-lasting blows. But at the key moment, the Bush administration diverted both attention and military resources from Afghanistan to Iraq. In particular, we sent special forces personnel that were engaged in the hunt for Osama bin Laden and other measures to try to weaken al-Qaeda and the Taliban. They were sent to Iraq months before the invasion of that country in order to prepare the ground for that invasion. That, I believe, was an especially momentous mistake. It's a truism in the world of sports, whether it's individual competition or team competition. When one lets one's opponent off the hook, 
whether it's boxing and you have your opponent on the ropes and he gets away, or a football team that should be routing the opponent in the first half and fails to close the deal, it often comes back to haunt them. And this is one of those cases in the world of defense and foreign policy. So that's the most basic reason, the foundation reason of why things have gone wrong. There are other reasons, though, and I'm going to describe them in roughly ascending order of importance. One reason is that NATO has not been especially helpful with this mission. Now, some countries, to be true, and I do want to emphasize this, some countries, such as Britain and Canada, have made very significant military contributions. Others, though, Germany at the head of the list, not so much. We have a lot of NATO allies and a fair number of NATO forces, some 30,000, in Afghanistan. But many of them are stationed up in the north of the country, where there is virtually no threat and virtually no fighting. And this is reminiscent from the assistance, if one can call it that, that America's allies, Japan and South Korea, provided in Iraq. Japan's was my personal favorite. They sent a contingent of military personnel, but their rules of engagement were such that they couldn't engage in any fighting. So therefore, the Japanese contingent had to be protected by other coalition forces in Iraq. The South Koreans obligingly stationed forces way up in Iraqi Kurdistan, where if there was an al-Qaeda or other insurgent operative, um, it would have been an extremely rare occurrence. I call these symbolic military deployments. Uh, they're not really meant to accomplish anything of substance, but they are designed to appear to be doing something really worthwhile for the United States. A number of the NATO countries have placed caveats, restrictions, on the use of their forces. Some cannot be used at night. Some cannot be used in any real combat zones. And the general impression that one gets is that a good many of these countries see their troops as humanitarian agents and nation builders, not fighters. U.S. military commanders privately, and sometimes not so privately, are furious at these restrictions, but they effectively undermine the mission. When you talk about having roughly 60,000 troops in Afghanistan, one must put an asterisk by that because only the U.S. troops and a portion of the NATO contingent really constitute worthwhile military contributions. Another reason, and one that's even more important, is the drug war complication. The United States, in essence, in Afghanistan has been waging two wars, a counterinsurgency campaign against the Taliban and al-Qaeda, and a war to eradicate the opium trade. Now, until recently, that second war was a much lower priority. And in fact, U.S. military officials tended to fend off pressure from Washington to do more on that front, and for a very logical reason. They knew 
it was counterproductive, that it undermined their primary mission, counterinsurgency. Now, when one talks about eradicating the opium trade in Afghanistan, you have to understand the context here. For the drug warriors, Afghanistan is, is the front lines. Afghanistan uh, provides about 90% of the world's heroin supply from opium poppies. The importance of the drug trade to Afghanistan is just mind-boggling. It is at least a third of the country's gross domestic product. The latest estimate from the United Nations is that 509,000 Afghan families are involved in growing opium or some other aspect of the drug trade. Now again, consider this just on a nuclear family basis. That would be about 14% of the population. And given the nature of Afghan society, you have to look at it on an extended family or clan basis. And if you do that, it is a fair estimate that about 35% of Afghanistan's population is involved directly or indirectly in the drug trade. So when you ask the Karzai government to wage a war on drugs and to eradicate the opium trade, that's roughly equivalent to asking Japan to eradicate its automobile and electronics industries. It's not going to go over very well with government officials or the population. Now, of course, advocates of taking a hard line on the drug war in Afghanistan say, well, a lot of this money goes into the coffers of the Taliban and al-Qaeda. That is absolutely true. However, this trade is so pervasive, a lot of the money also goes into the pockets of pro-Karzai warlords. And, of course, many ordinary farmers prosper handsomely from this. And they are not going to take kindly to efforts that would disrupt their livelihood. Going after any aspect of the drug trade is risky. U.S. pressure to eradicate drug crops, which will go directly after Afghan farmers, is extraordinarily risky and counterproductive. And we're already seeing some of the consequences of that effort. Populations, particularly in Helmand and Kandahar provinces in the south, now seem to be swinging back to support the Taliban because of anti-drug measures. A good many of the regional power brokers in Afghanistan supported the Taliban right up to the time of the U.S.-led invasion in the fall of 2001, and then they switched sides. Well, their loyalty has always been a little bit suspect, and there are indications that some of them are switching back. The brutal reality is we need both the warlords and the general population as intelligence sources, and in the case of the warlords, as military allies against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The drug war, quite simply, is counterproductive. We need to keep our priorities straight. We can never win the broader counterinsurgency war if we insist on simultaneously fighting the drug war. Another reason why the situation has deteriorated and that is the existence of the safe havens, the sanctuaries across the border in Pakistan. And Malou has already discussed that at some length. Um, 
the Taliban and al-Qaeda forces can launch attacks into Afghanistan, retreat back into Pakistan where they can rebuild their forces again and, and recover. Another reason why we're failing, and that is our excessive nation-building assumptions. We have drifted, almost without any analysis at all, into an open-ended nation-building mission in Afghanistan. Again, we're seven years into this process. And increasingly, policymakers and just members of the policy community generally seem to assume we can't have achieved victory until Afghanistan becomes an orderly, prosperous, secular, liberal society. Well, unfortunately, it has never been that in its history, and that creates a bit of a problem. That's far beyond our ability to achieve unless we plan to stay for generations, and even then, it's quite possibly not achievable. But we don't need to have Afghanistan become the Asian equivalent of Alaska or Arizona for U.S. policy to succeed. All we need is that Afghanistan not be a safe haven for al-Qaeda the way it was in the years prior to 9-11. Now, even that may be difficult to achieve, but at least there is a reasonable prospect. If we insist on this broader nation-building mission, we are going to be at it for decades, and we may never truly succeed. What we need now is an exit strategy. General David Petraeus, at the time of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, once said to a colleague, tell me how this ends. Well, I think that should be a required question for all U.S. policymakers before any military intervention anywhere. And it certainly applies to the situation in Afghanistan. Now, the conventional wisdom at the moment is that we need a troop surge in Afghanistan just like we had in Iraq. Well, I think there's probably a better justification for it in Afghanistan than there was in Iraq. And I've even said a few favorable things about that uh, in the past. But I'd have to say, even that tactic, it's not certain whether it's a particularly good idea. And even if it is a reasonably good idea as a short-term tactical measure, this cannot be a panacea. The history of Afghanistan from the time of Alexander the Great's conquest to the British in the 19th century and the Soviets in the 20th shows very clearly that Afghanistan is relatively easy to conquer. But it's nearly impossible to occupy and control over a long-term basis. Unfortunately, American policymakers now seem determined to prove that point once again. We need to accept less than a definitive victory. And that may mean that we only damage and harass al-Qaeda rather than eliminate or cripple the organization. We have to accept the realities of Afghanistan, 
of regional power brokers and less than a Western-style democracy. And I know for American nation builders, that's, that's absolute heresy. But the reality is that the Afghan system, such as it was, worked pretty well for a good many decades before the Soviets began to meddle in the 1970s and then the Americans and Pakistanis in the decades that followed. If Afghanistan can return to something akin to that, from the standpoint of American interests, that is a decent result. It's not going to win any good government awards from the, uh, uh, the would-be nation builders in this country, but this would adequately protect our interests. Since I'm in the business of heresy, let me say that we may even need to see whether we can cut a deal with the Afghan Taliban to divide that faction from its al-Qaeda allies, much as General Petraeus rather shrewdly cut a deal with indigenous Iraqi Sunni insurgents to separate them from al-Qaeda in Iraq. I don't know if that's possible in the case of Afghanistan, but we at least not, should not rule that out as a possibility. <clears throat> Clearly, there are no easy answers, but we need to be thinking about options for and the general features of an exit strategy now and not let this continue to be a mission that drifts on for years or even worse, decades with no definitive conclusion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ted. Uh, we do have some time for questions now. If you don't mind, if you have a question, uh, please keep it relatively short and please speak up because we don't have a microphone for you. Uh, yes, sir. That's a very good question, and it's uh, not one that's easy to answer. Um, on the one hand, on the one hand, we have a government uh, that has spent like drunken sailors for many, many years, and uh, I'm not sure that they have reached bottom to the point that they're going to start their 12-step program to rehabilitate. Um, you know, I would certainly would like to see some discussion in this whole crisis of, all right, if we're going to come up with $700 billion to solve the uh, credit crunch, what programs domestically and internationally are we prepared to cut to start freeing up some funds? I see absolutely zero discussion of that here in Washington. Um, now, I would say Pakistan and Afghanistan are not the places internationally where I want to start to, to uh, close the, uh, the, uh, the wallet. Uh, there are a lot of other places that uh, 
should have top priority. Uh, for instance, we might ask, why exactly do we need to have 27,000 troops in South Korea anymore uh, when South Korea has an economy 40 times the size of North Korea and can build whatever forces it needs? Why do we still need tens of thousands of troops in Europe? Why do we need uh, not only an F-22 fighter plane for the Air Force but a joint strike fighter within a matter of uh, less than a decade? Maybe we ought to start making some hard choices. This, unfortunately, is truly the central front in the war on uh, radical Islamic terrorism, though, and I don't think that's the place we want to start cutting back immediately. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, there have been uh, a number of suggestions along those lines, including uh, uh, some people who have been critics of the international drug war. And that's an idea that, that sounds good on the surface, might even have some merit, but it does have a problem. And that is just the very nature of uh, the global market in drugs. Unless you're going to have the U.S. government go into the drugs business and distribute this product to its ultimate consumers in Europe primarily. In this case, uh, if you're just going to buy up the opium crop as much as you can, you still have the problem that the drug traffickers can pretty well outbid you. Uh, they have a product that they want to deliver to consumers. And if you're buying up the product at a certain price, uh, they can double it or triple it or quadruple it, whatever is needed to get more farmers to go into the, the, uh, the uh, growing of the crops or... Uh, to s existing farmers to sell some uh, to the U.S. or Afghan government and then divert the rest to the more profitable uh, illegal pipeline. Uh, yes, sir. Very true, very true, and I think that's the central problem with uh, the counterinsurgency uh, operations that we experience both in Iraq and in Afghanistan in the sense that you can always have bad intelligence in the sense. I mean, um, we just recently, uh, Afghan police officer actually shot at U.S. forces. I mean, this, this is an, an instance where, I mean, the intelligence wasn't bad. It was someone who was working from the inside. So I think you, may, you bring up a very good point. The question as far as Islamabad, uh, Islamabad's assistance or what they know about um, the intelligence regarding America's incursions into the tribal areas, it's interesting to say the least because right after uh, the first commando raid in, into South Waziristan several weeks ago, um, Islamabad said that all Afghanistan-bound supplies going into NATO operations will be cut off, and they did that for several days. Um, so that was a very vulnerable spot that they placed the NATO forces in. But there's also a question of whether or not Islamabad actually manufactured their anger and basically said, well, we need to basically 
be angry at the United States to placate our domestic public and give a wink and a nod to U.S. forces to allow them to eliminate the tribal areas. So it's very difficult to say, but you bring up a very, very good point. Questions in the back? Certainly as a medium to long-term goal, that is, over the next several years, I think the United States ought to uh, withdraw the vast majority of its military forces from Afghanistan. Uh, we probably need to keep some special forces in country to assist the Afghan government in going after Taliban and al-Qaeda operatives, but we ought to aim at the smallest, the lightest footprint possible going forward. Now, I think the biggest problem is how do we get from where we are now to that kind of situation where uh, the withdrawal of the overwhelming majority of our forces becomes possible. And, uh, you know, I outlined, I think, some of the steps we need to do, at least some of the things we need to explore. But uh, I don't want to see the United States have 30,000 troops and NATO another 30,000 troops or uh, if President Obama or President McCain have their way, where we may have 40 or 50,000 or 60,000 troops in Afghanistan, and we're there at the end of the McCain or Obama administration eight years from now with that same level of, of troops. I think that would be a, a horrific measure of the failure of our policy if we're in that position looking that many years down the road. Other questions? Do another I don't want to imply that the military is a monolith in its thinking, but uh, the dominant view has been over the years, whenever they get these instructions from Washington, I think they roll their eyes and go, all right, now what's the minimum we can do to placate the bureaucrats in the State Department and the Drug Enforcement Administration and the people in Congress who are putting the pressure on to do something about this to show that we are doing something, but not disrupt the essential military and intelligence relations that we have with the warlords, the regional power brokers. Uh, the British pretty much adopted that position uh, to an even greater extent, and until very recently the British forces actually had the lead with regard to anti-drug efforts in Afghanistan. And yeah, I, when you talk to military people in either country, they do seem to recognize that this at the very least, greatly complicates their mission, if not completely uh, works across purposes with it. But they have to put up with the pressure coming from uh, civilian leaders in their governments. And uh, the Karzai government is in much the same position. When it gets pressure from Washington, I think uh, Karzai and his people look around, okay, what kind of grandstand play can we make that looks like we're really doing something about this and typically what they'll do is to target some big-name trafficker who apparently has been playing footsie with al-Qaeda and the Taliban and uh, make a big play of, of 
knocking out uh, his drug supplies. But meanwhile, warlords that are involved in the trade but are friendly to Kabul, you know, they don't touch them. And above all, of all the things they don't want to do is to go after crop eradication because that strikes directly at the Afghan farmers and I think it would be utterly disastrous if we ever adopted that strategy on a large-scale basis. Just, just, to your, just to your question, I think that one thing that we can learn from the various foreign invaders who have been in conquered Afghanistan is the sense that there needs to be some sort of political reconciliation, some sort of political um, end result or solution to all of this. Because, again, what Ted mentioned in his, in his uh, presentation and what should be emphasized is that this region has been conquered and reconquered and conquered and reconquered for hundreds of years. And so this region is not only notoriously resistant to outsiders. It's also heavily militarized. And so any sort of um, accommodation needs to be brought about politically. And it's also important to to emphasize, again, what Ted mentioned, but what should be stressed here is that uh, Hamid Karzai's writ does not extend beyond Kabul. I mean, there are Taliban activity on the outskirts of Kabul. Uh, and the Afghan Taliban, the original Afghan Taliban that I talked about earlier, um, they have reconquered a lar- large portions of southern and eastern Afghanistan today. So, again, um, this kind of instance of just, you know, going in militarily, granted, again, it's one of those things where we can knock out certain insurgents, but we have to look at what the collateral damage of that leads to, and if it's going to push more tribesmen further into the Taliban camp, that undermines our mission. If I could uh, just add a little bit to that. I think American policymakers and American opinion leaders generally um, are the victim of what I call a map-centric policy. We have maps of a particular region, and we have country X that's a certain color, and there's a star somewhere in the center of that, uh, of that, uh, that color. And we tend to think of these areas as countries in the Western sense of the term. And uh, in so many cases in Asia and Africa, uh, that's simply not the case, and that's definitely the case with Afghanistan. If you're talking, and to a lesser extent, but still significant extent, with Pakistan, uh, these are very loosely linked entities where subnational loyalties to tribe and clan often supersede any degree of national loyalty. So when you see Afghanistan on a map, don't think, well, this looks like the equivalent of Poland. It's not. You don't have that same degree of social cohesion. Again, just to Ted's point, I guess we're just going back and forth here, but um, just in the sense of the, the different loyalties that people have, uh, what we find today is that actually the Afghan security forces, they have different loyalties as well, not necessarily to the government in Kabul, but to their warlords or to their tribes. And so we're seeing fracturing within the Afghan security forces today, and uh, especially within uh, what I was talking about earlier regarding the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, the Duran line. Um, various Afghan governments have never even recognized the Duran line. Um, so basically what you have you know, you have Pakistani officials who say, okay, well, let's fence the border, let's mine the border, and you have leaders in Kabul who say, well, we don't want you to do that because we don't recognize the Duran line as a border. So, I mean, it's just this weird contradiction of sorts with these borders, and it's, it's uh, very different uh, from what we think here in the West, but yeah, good question.
On this, I think we have to follow the lead of uh, President Karzai and his political allies. Uh, what I'm saying with regard to nation building is that we cannot, through uh, our efforts, create a modern, pluralistic, stable, well-governed Afghanistan. That's just not going to happen. We have to be willing to accept something far less than that. And I'm going to assume that the Afghan political leaders on the ground know a lot more about this society than we do. And that to the extent that we're involved there, however long we're involved there, we pretty well need to follow their lead while setting some boundaries. Namely, you know, we don't have a, a checkbook that is always going to be open to fund the Karzai government and its allies to the extent that they might want to be funded and for certainly not for the duration that they would very much like to be funded. Just one thing to that. Um, we also should keep in mind that Afghanistan is about one and a half times the size of Iraq. And I've been reading several articles recently on um, they talk to uh, U.S. forces, U.S. troops who actually go to Afghanistan and go to Iraq or, you know, different deployments. And they say the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan is so stark. I mean, it's just you can walk into a home in Iraq and see, you know, space balls moving in Arabic. But, you know, in Afghanistan, I mean, many villages – Literacy rates are in the single digits. There's no electricity. People still live in mud huts. I mean, we would literally have to start from the bottom up, from scratch. And any sort of venture like that would take a, an enormous amount of national will on the part of the United States, which I don't think we have, and we don't have the resources uh, as well. Um, so it'll be extremely difficult, and it's an extremely daunting project if we were committed to something like that. And if we were, it'd take years, if not decades. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think we have time for maybe one more question over there. Yes, Nick Pallarino, Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Could you explain a little bit more your um, point about if we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan or Iraq, whatever you meant by that? Could you explain that a little bit more to me? I just don't understand. Okay. Now, what you saw in, uh, in two. Yeah, in 2002 and into 2003, uh, the top foreign policy priority of the Bush administration was very rapidly becoming Iraq. There, there was no question about that. And in terms of the attention of America's policymakers, that was shifting dramatically toward Iraq during that time. We also had the, the shift of, of military resources especially uh, the, the withdrawal of special forces personnel from missions in Afghanistan and, I suspect, even a bit across the border into Pakistan from time to time. Uh, and that, those personnel, uh, several thousand of which actually, were pulled out of Afghanistan and sent to Iraq in the months before the 2003 invasion. And there, there's no way of knowing whether we would have been able to administer a knockout blow to al-Qaeda at that time. We can't rerun history. But I think there was at least the opportunity to do that, and if not that, at least to do so much damage to the organization that it would have been many, many years in recovery. And by diverting our resources and attention to the impending mission in Iraq, we forfeited that opportunity. 
and I doubt if that kind of opportunity is going to come again anytime soon, if ever. Well, that's such a misplaced historical analogy. I'm not sure where to begin. Yeah, in this case, yeah, the United States uh, had two mortal enemies at that time uh, with enormous resources, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan. And that was not an easy decision for the United States, by the way, to decide whether to go after the European theater first or to go after the country that had launched the attack against the United States. They made the decision that the greater strategic danger was posed by Germany, which pound for pound had the best military in the world, had a much uh, more capable and larger economy to support its war effort than did Japan and that it was necessary to take care of that problem uh, with the highest priority and giving secondary priority to going after Japan. Now, we could debate this endlessly, but I did not believe at the time I was one of the original critics of the Iraq mission, and I still do not believe that Saddam Hussein posed any kind of serious threat to the United States least of all with non-existent weapons of mass destruction, mounted least of all on non-existent unmanned aerial vehicles, which were heighted, highlighted as the alleged threat to the United States. I think we're going to have to end on that non-controversial point there. <laughs> uh, we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining us today, and please uh, join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>